Let's start with you here as chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. And what is it you tell young women here? Well, I tell young women, whether they're here at King's College or anywhere else, that particularly if they've got a passion for politics, for leadership, for public policy, uh, that they should go for it. You know, I think that there um, are a lot of young women who look at the experience of women leaders, particularly women politicians, and the question comes into their mind, is it all worth it? I always answer that question saying, yes, it's definitely worth it, go for it. But I don't insult anybody's intelligence by pretending that there still won't be gendered moments or issues to think through. And what's the thing that makes it worth it? If you really do have a you know, drive to change your nation, change the world, uh, then in my view there is no more effective way to do that than through politics or public service. Um, it gives you more of an ability to put your values into action than any other walk of life. Do you get many young women saying to you, I'm thinking of politics, but I might be thinking of business, um, and I don't know which to go for, and maybe business, there isn't all the scrutiny, and I get to run my own shop? Uh, no, I actually don't usually get that feedback. I think uh, young women do recognise that in the business community you're not quite as out there in the public square, uh, but that they still see a series of barriers against women in business. And so um, you're back in the same conversation about, you know, what's what to go for, what's worth it, what are the gendered bits. But I would give the same advice to someone who wanted to be the next CEO of a, you know, Fortune 500 company. Um, if that's what you want to do, absolutely go for it. I ask that because I started off in the city uh, ages ago when there were very few women, and um, but women made a lot of progress very quickly because you could point to achievements or the numbers or so on, and it, it can be harder in politics. So, what, what do you um, what do you advise uh, women going into politics about the kind of barriers that they might face and how they they should tackle them? Well, there's no one um, magic solution. If there was, we would have found it by now. Uh, but of the barriers that I talk through with young women. Um, clearly, uh, some political party structures uh, still aren't very uh, facilitative of women being pre-selected as candidates. Um, some parties have made a leap forward on that. For example, the Australian Labor Party adopted an affirmative action target and now in the national parliament is pretty close to 50-50. But that's not true of political parties around the world. So the first thing to puzzle through is the pre-selection system and how biased that is towards um, male networks of power, uh, then you need to think about how you would manage your parliamentary career for a lot of young women who want to combine uh, being in public office with having a family. There's a big set of issues to think about there. And I know that there's been some change in the UK to help people have a more family-friendly existence. You, you mean in, in Parliament, for example? Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, For example, I know Stella Creasy, uh, a, a Member of Parliament here, uh, was the first one to get the authorities to agree that she could have a locum in her electorate while she was off on maternity leave. So actually have someone substitute for her effectively. Now that should sound like a pretty simple thing but apparently it hasn't been a simple thing to achieve uh, here at the House of Commons. Uh, then I would uh, talk to young women about 
the way in which stereotypes still whisper in human brains about uh, women who are leaders. And so there's very good research now that shows uh, that we tend to correlate leadership and likability for men, but we don't for women. Um, and it pays to know that and be prepared for those things in advance as well as, I should say, the endless focus on appearance issues. Well, let's just dwell on that for a second. Um, do you think social media has made that worse? Yes, though I think it is worse in social media. It's worse because of social media and uh, because standards in traditional media have fallen. Uh, we uh, published here at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership a piece of research actually done by an Australian a PhD candidate at uh, the Australian National University, a woman called Blair Williams. She studied the traditional newspapers for the first two weeks after Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister and then the first two weeks after Theresa May did and found that the coverage was more gendered now. And by that, she meant more likely to go to questions of appearance, for example. And I think that really is about falling media standards, that there's lots of things that would be said about politicians today that would not have been said in 1979. On the other hand, you do get women saying, look, it's an advantage. You can actually stand out. You're, if you're referring to it, wearing a beautiful purple jacket with, with black braiding at the moment, and uh, men um, probably couldn't do that on the, on the world stage. Uh, true, but uh, there is a benefit in having the uniform. Um, and when we think, you know, uh, for uniforms in our society, uh, school uniforms, why do we do that? Uh, well, you might think your uh, child's school uniform is ugly, but once you've had that conversation once, there's no point having it every day when the child puts it on. Uh, and so ultimately, a uniform look takes uh, appearance issues increasingly out of the equation. And you find many women in public life actually develop their own uniforms, so they tend to try and look the same or pretty close to the same every day. I'm thinking here of uh, Chancellor Merkel and her black pants and coloured jackets. She's obviously uh, developed that so that you don't talk about what was she wearing yesterday and what is she going to be wearing tomorrow because you know it will be around the same. I was, I was going to move on to her and not about appearance either. We've got there a woman leader who's been there for a long time and um, really the kind of, um, in a way, most dominant leader in uh, European politics for a very long time. What do you think that has changed? Well, one, I think the role modelling matters just for women around the world uh, to see that a woman can be there and a woman can be there for a long period of time exercising power. Uh, once again, the research is very clear that uh, role modelling does matter to aspiration. Um, she hasn't spoken much across her career about gender. She's done it a little bit more uh, in this uh, latter part of her period in power, and I'm hoping that she does uh, write on these questions and speak about them. It will be interesting to get her take from the inside as to what it's been like. We're talking on one of the first days of Alex Salmon's trial, the former uh, head of the SNP, uh, a trial for a, a range of allegations, and including attempted rape, all of which he denies, uh, and we're waiting for Harvey Weinstein to be, be sentenced. Do you think that Me Too has made a difference? Yes, I do. Uh, I think uh, Me Too has uh, helped uh, people uh, find their voice uh, about um, this kind of conduct in workplaces, whether they be uh, political workplaces, Hollywood, uh, traditional businesses or anywhere else. I think it's enabled more women to uh, speak about this kind of treatment. 
I think it's uh, meant that many organisations have addressed uh, their uh, complaints policies, are more likely now to have a system where a woman can uh, bring a problem and have it seriously addressed. What it hasn't done, and this I think is the next big step, is it hasn't done that for every woman in every workplace. There are still um, issues about, you know, visibility here. Uh, so a woman in Hollywood with a substantial Twitter account uh, is obviously someone who's been able to make the most use of Me Too. Uh, we've got to be asking ourselves the question, has it made a real difference for the woman who works in a factory or on the uh, floor of a restaurant? Uh, and I think Apart from that, the distribution of whether or not it's enabled women to come forward, uh, it's moving to the stage where it's not just about having complaint structures, but it's about proactively changing cultures within business. Or politics. Well, I was coming back to politics and, and to uh, the United States, which you were just touching on there. Do you think it's something about the United States that, that is really uh, not uh, producing uh, a woman president, or is it just the accidents of politics? I think it's a, it, it's a bit of a mix of both. Um, I do think uh, that Westminster systems are possibly a little easier to navigate for women. Um, now, I can't claim a huge evidence base, but um, I do think a system where your pathway to power includes getting the uh, trust and respect of your colleagues, um, the ones who work most closely with you and know you the best, uh, might be an easier system than the US presidential system where you've got to bolt up a campaign with huge amounts of money and media exposure in order to get your party's nomination and then having got your party's nomination in order to come through for the presidency. I'm interested in some of your views on uh, politics as they are now, if, if you like. We've, we've got a lot of uh, Australian strategists who've been a bit rocking up in the UK, uh, Linda Crosby, um, uh, Isaac Levido. What do you think they bring? What can people from Australian politics, perhaps yourself included, really tell us here? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure I'm going to take uh, ownership of uh, all of the many millions of Australians uh, that there are who may or may not bring themselves to the UK. Uh, that might be beyond me. Um, look, I, I don't think that we've got any uh, special magic or special chemistry uh, in, in Australia when it comes to politics. I'm hugely proud of my nation, but I wouldn't uh, claim that for it. I think, though, because we both have um, you know comparable political systems that people who have uh, cut their campaigning teeth um, in either the UK or Australia can take transferable skills to the to the other side. Um, you know, so a good campaigner here could come to an Australian election and kind of recognise how it's done. And I think the other way. So there's enough parallels between them that it works. But maybe maybe that virtue of distance. I always think uh, that there is a, a virtue in distance. You don't um, necessarily have to get that by being from another country. Um, often you can get an interesting perspective when you're in the middle of politics by just talking to someone who only watches it episodically from the outside. I mean, like any other incredibly intense, uh, relentless workload job, you can get too close so that you're no longer seeing the big 
tidal waves, you're tending to see the chop on the surface and, um, you know, getting someone who's uh, got a, a good perspective, a good mind, but is a little bit further back from the details than you can always help. And is, one, is that one of the traps of politics, that you're pushed all the time to give lots of announcements and that it can be really hard to see the wood for the trees and remember what you're trying to do? Yeah, I don't think that's uniquely true of politics, but uh, it no, is. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it, no, it isn't. But it, but it is. Um, there are special pressures uh, in politics, which mean that's um, a real and an, an even greater risk. I mean, you know, uh, way back when, uh, when the media cycle was the uh, morning newspapers, afternoon newspapers, and the evening news, um, even that cycle was too fast for good government. Um, now that cycle is a quaint uh, piece of history um, and, you know, the, the cycle moves minute by minute and the judgment calls in politics about how, how much you chase the cycle as opposed to how much you stand back from it are very complex ones. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, well, why don't they just, um, you know, take the time it needs to to govern well, uh, well, the reality is uh, people would be reading in social media and in uh, the newspapers and, and watching the news, which would be saying that the government's, you know, at sea, not doing anything directionless, do nothing, um, unless it's feeding the media beast. So these are very difficult judgment calls. So with the benefit of slight distance and a short passage of time, how do you think we should remember Theresa May's achievements? Uh, well, when I um, uh, look at Theresa May, I do think that there was um, uh, gender in her treatment. Um, I think uh, she is uh, someone who came to office, uh, you know, she wasn't holding a, a handful of aces at the start. Um, yes, people can have their, uh, you know, criticisms about the way she played out the cards she had in her hand, but uh, Brexit was an enormously complex question. I think the fact that she came... Uh, into the leadership not as a Brexiteer, um, you know, not a hardline Brexiteer, meant that there was always going to be a distrust about her motivations as she went about these complex negotiations and um, that all ultimately showed in uh, the Tory party and what happened next. You've got a new book out and uh, you've talked to a range of impressive women leaders. What was the most surprising thing to you in, in doing those conversations? Uh, not out yet. It'll be uh, com- no. It'll be coming out in the middle of the year. I co-authoring it um, with uh, a great friend of mine, Ngozi Conjury Wheeler, uh, who I came to know because she chairs the Global Vaccine Alliance. Uh, and I chair the Global Partnership for Education, the global fund and partnership that uh, tries to make sure every child uh, around the world, and particularly in the poorest parts of the world, gets a great quality school education. Um, I, we have interviewed a range of uh, women leaders from around the world. I think one of the impressions I've certainly walked away with is that there is more in common uh, in their experience as women than the very different contexts in which they came to leadership would ex- lead you to expect. Um, there's more commonality between them. You mean in what, uh, what they experienced, what they tried to do, uh, the methods of working? Uh, in what they experienced, in the right. way gender played a role in their leadership. But not necessarily in the outcome of that leadership or their no. ways of working? Or, or, no, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking, yeah. talking about countries as different as uh, Liberia and Norway. Uh, so, I mean, clearly uh, contexts are incredibly different and uh, challenges are... Uh, that these uh, leaders faced are incredibly different, but uh, there was a 
a commonality about um, the way in which they were perceived as women, and we try and uh, work our way through that in the book. Perhaps the most recognisable uh, woman in public life uh, in the world is the Queen. Do you think she's going to be the last uh, monarch of Australia? I don't know. Um, you know, these these things can be hard to predict. Uh, what I do think uh, will happen is, um, you know, the Queen is made of uh, a strong uh, genetic stock, so she may well be with us for another uh, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years. So I mean her, uh, I mean her no uh, harm. But um, when uh, the day eventually comes. Uh, that the Queen is no longer with us, then I do think it will lead to a period of reflection uh, in Australia about whether that's the right moment to revisit our constitutional arrangements. Finally, you've just, um, you, you've just uh, come top of the uh, uh, poll. Uh, your, your moment in 2012, you told uh, Tony Abbott as leader of the opposition that the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. It's been voted the most unforgettable moment in Australian TV history. Uh, what do you think that is? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was uh, uh, fairly bemused when I saw that poll. I thought maybe um, Scott and Charlene's wedding on uh, Neighbours or perhaps Molly's death on a country practice, uh, uh, all of which were very dramatic uh, TV moments in Australia, would have topped the poll. Um, I think uh, that speech has continued to resonate uh, with women especially, but also with um, men who were uh, motivated and care about uh, women's uh, issues and, and gender discrimination, I think it's continued to resonate because it, it's come to represent the things that a lot of people wish they'd said in a moment when they were treated as uh, treated differently or in a lesser way because they were a woman or they saw a woman treated like that and they think back and to themselves, oh, I wish I'd actually said something. And I think that speech has uh, come to represent um, a moment when things were said and said very forcefully. Julie Gillard, thank you very much. Thank you.